the guests at our webinar and she comments regularly on various issues and produces very interesting thought leadership pieces. Um, so welcome Dawn from uh, Karenga. She's a, an independent advisor with her own firm called Karenga. Welcome Dawn. Nice to see you again, Jackie. And then we've also got two people today from 91, the investment platform, Mark Lindley and Albert Kutsia. Uh, and 91 used to be Investec. Albert, would you just like to give us a brief overview of what 91 investment platform, what that actually is, how you fit into the world of financial planning? Thank you, Jackie, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, yes, uh, we were part of the Investec Bank previously, called Investec Asset Management. And in March, just I think just a couple of the 16th of March, uh, we delisted from Investec Bank, and then we listed separately in Johannesburg as well as in London. And we called now 91. Some people may ask where, where the word 91 come from. That is the year when Investec Asset Management started in South Africa. And uh, if you look at 91, obviously we globally. And uh, in South Africa, I always say there's three components uh, of the business. is the institutional business, is the unit trust business, and then is also the investment platform business where Mark and I form part of. And the investment platform business is a platform business where, um, where we do the administration of various products. Um, and assist independent advisors um, in South Africa, both on the local side as well as the offshore side. And products meaning like investment uh, products, um, policy wrappers, retirement annuities, preservation funds, living annuities, as well as offshore. Thank you. And then I caught, this little uh, note caught my eye on in your biography, Mark. It says you focus on opportunities and challenges that present themselves as a result of regulatory change. Are you very busy right now? Yeah, I, th I think the main thing that we've probably been waiting for is for the retail distribution review, I think is the, the major piece of legislation that's, that, that's coming, although it doesn't seem to be coming very, very quickly right now. So I, I think the things that we've been focused on more, and it'll probably come out uh, later in this presentation, is uh, with the tax environment becoming quite prohibitive now, especially for trusts and for wealthy individuals. Um, we're trying to look at opportunities that existing products provide to, to give relief to uh, individuals who are saving. And are you very busy right now uh, with P South Africans looking for opportunities elsewhere? Yeah, I think uh, talking to the theme that, uh, that Albert and I are discussing today, offshore, obviously, there's a lot of anti-South African sentiment uh, right now, people looking to get money out of the country at any cost. So, yeah, definitely keeping us very busy. And just remember, you can put your questions in the chat box. Uh, and while we are waiting for your questions, uh, uh, Albert, would you just like to take us through some of the points uh, about investing offshore? Uh, thank you, Jackie. The, this is an interesting slide. So if you look at it and say, my goodness, what's going on here? Um, this is a, we always say, so once the client decided, now this slide is about, I'm taking my money out of the country. Um, you can take the money out of the country and invest, for example, in an overseas unit trust. You can invest in an overseas share portfolio. You can use what we offer, overseas investment platform is a basket a platform where you offer various unit trusts in one basket, or um, for example, overseas pension structures, uh, overseas policy wrapper, but um, sort of not to go into detail with each and every structure, unless there's questions later on. What Mark and I have done is we've taken all those various products and we said like, if the client is, there's a lot of components or moving parts to take into account, but if you sort of just say, Mr. Client, think of four components to ask the question about, and those are the questions about how much can I contribute? Um, what is the liquidity of my investment? Very important, the tax status of those investments, especially if I, the client, is a South African tax resident from an income tax point of view, a capital gains tax point of view, et cetera. Or for example, when uh, the client die, um, and that's I like this topic of yours today for like long-term investment, because very often the, the client says, you know what, I don't worry, my wife gets it. And there's a lot of tax rollovers between husband and wife. But the actual question, in my view, in our view, one should actually ask the client is who's getting it after, for example, your wife passed away. Because between the different products you can choose, there is like I can think about six, seven different tax components or cost components that can happen on death. But you can actually exclude quite a lot of them 
if your structure of investment overseas is correct. So to summarize, this is um, the four components I think is important, and whatever structure you use going for and offshore, that those components, the answer to those components will differ. Thank you. And Dawn, do you use an investment platform like 91 at all? How, how, do you, how does that platform fit in with your financial planning? Um, yeah, I use a number of platforms. Um, Investec is my second favorite. Sorry. Right. Um, and I mean, I use Investec because my clients like to use Investec. It's a very um, easy interface for both me and my clients um, to use. And it has access to multiple um, unit trusts locally and and offshore. So, um, yes, I do use 91, but I use most of the others as well. I'll use Alan Gray Coronation. Um, I steer away from insurance platforms um, and um, I use some of the sort of perhaps less well-known. Um, Prescient is one of the sort of less well-known ones, particularly when it comes to what's called a personalized share portfolio, a PSP, wrapped in a life license. Um, but yes, I use a number of platforms. That's why that's why I'm called independent, I guess. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, we have a question from Vikas who actually wants to know, what about building the South African economy through investments? Should we not also invest locally? So we've been we've we've had a, we've touched on offshore investing and how popular that that is. Albert, what about investing locally? What's your view at 91? I think, um, Vickers, most importantly, I agree with you personally as well. Um, I think currently, because of various components currently, mm -hmm. maybe in the media, uh, some people are worried about South Africa. I know we, we all know about those various facts. And because of that, offshore investing is very topical. Uh, Mark and I'm actually and happy to share it later on with you, Jackie, is working on a presentation currently is that, uh, for example, a client has a local investment, for example, a preservation fund. And we saw it about two weeks ago, that was 15 million rand. He cashed it in. I think he paid about 5 million rands of taxes because he's taking the money out of the country to invest offshore. Now, we don't necessarily agree with that because we busy compiling a presentation pack just to almost use that as, dear Mr. Klein, did you know that by doing that, you've created obviously a lot of taxes so that whatever you invest offshore to make up that 5 million rand um, tax, which you lost, um, you suddenly now offshore exposed to creditors. You're suddenly now exposed to estate duty which in the preservation fund you was not, exposed to capital gains on death, exposed to executor's fees. So if you add up all of those stuff, costs, which he incurred now, or exposed himself now by just simply running to go invest offshore, it's in, for my view, it's almost <coughs> impossible to make up for that. So yes, because I agree with you 100%, is definitely not, and as Dawn said earlier, it also depends on the client's circumstances. Certain clients cannot afford to go offshore if they next year have to bring the money back to live off or retire on in South Africa. So it's definitely not all for uh, everything for everyone. Dawn, would yeah, you like think... to add to that? Um, yes, you know, um, I think, you know, we've discussed the sort of in, in previous webinars, the issues around prescribed assets, for example, which is one of the one of the sort of, I suppose, triggers of uh, encouraging people to sort of make that knee jerk reaction and suddenly cash out and go offshore. And, you know, everything that um, is said is absolutely right. You can, you know, um, incurring, you know, 36 percent in tax just to get it out of the country just makes no sense. But um, I think uh, when it comes to sort of building wealth in this country, <coughs> you know, when it comes to individuals, yes, there is wealth and people like Investec can help you look after that. But um, we have to think more. <coughs> Sorry. Sorry, should we, do, you, do you want us to come back to you while you have a glass of water? <coughs> okay, great, thanks. Mark, would you like to pick up on that? Do you think we should be investing locally? Sure. So I, I think our point, um, and I'm sure Dawn was probably coming to this, is that, you know, when you invest offshore, it's part of a holistic financial plan. It's not uh, to put everything there. So to invest everything offshore is just as bad as to invest everything locally. So the reason you invest offshore is typically for for diversification reasons. But obviously, we've seen that the RAND has weakened quite significantly over the past 10 years, but especially um, if you look year to date, where at one point um, from the start of the year to the sort of peak of the COVID crisis, um, it lost a quarter of its value. 
So if you were to go offshore at that point, I mean, the RAN can stay too strong or too weak for extended periods of time. But if you, but it also can move in either direction very, very rapidly. And if you get caught on the wrong side of that, you can lose a huge amount of wealth very, very quickly. So I think I would just make the point that um, sensible allocations is, is, is what it's all about. So, and what is a sensible allocation for you in broad brushstrokes? I think it varies from from time to time. If you look at the multi-asset funds here in South Africa, they're allowed to take up to 30% um, today. I think in some modeling that we've done in the past, um, it suggested that a optimum sort of risk return profile may be closer to the region of 40%, but it, it can change. But I think as Dawn would probably tell you, I think it varies very much from client to client and depending on their overall risk profile. Mm. Thank you. There's a very practical question from Fred here. He says, how does an investor under the age of 55 invest offshore in an RA? Albert, would you want to just take us through those practical steps? So you've, you've got your money, you need a minimum lump sum, or you could do a debit order. How, how would this work if you want to invest offshore in an RA? Yeah, good point there, um, Fred. Um, remember, as I just wanted to, before you ask the question, Jack, I just almost like this, so it ties in quite nicely. Um, the, the, obviously, what we mentioned so far, offshore investment is when your client takes his or her 10 million allowance or 1 million discretionary allowance out of the country. But there's a lot of other ways also to get offshore exposure. Now, Fred, when you invest in a retirement annuity, normally the minimums are quite low. You can do a debit order or you can do a lump sum but the moment very important to remember um, the moment you invest into a retirement annuity the retirement annuity product is governed by the pensions fund act and the moment then if you remember the pensions fund or hear about the pensions fund act you must remember also that regulation 28 is applicable and regulation 28 mark correct me if i'm wrong says that you cannot invest more than 30 percent offshore so that means, um, because I'm afraid you'll take your X amount of money, you'll invest into a, for example, you give it your complete application form, you invest in the RA with the 91 investment platform, you choose various funds, but depending on the fund you choose, you can choose maybe a multi-asset fund, they, the fund manager, will block that 30% on your behalf, or you can do a very clear sort of equities, cash bonds offshore. But then again, Regulation 28 will block you at 30%. Now that type of offshore exposure is an asset swap or a feeder fund where you'll invest into a South African fund, touch with registered with the FECA, and that fund will feed in its overseas version um, and you make use of the platform or the product offshore capacity. So there, Fred, you do not make use of your 10 million or 1 million allowances. You make use of feeder funds and assets of funds, obviously controlled and regulated by Regulation 28, which form part of the RA. Thank you. That's a very uh, clear explanation. And tying in with this, Judith wants to know what is the difference between a living annuity and a retirement annuity? Albert, would you like to take that question as well, or was that one for Mark? Um, I think Mark, I'm happy to take it. Mark can take it as well. Um, I just to add one step back with Fred. Uh, Fred, years ago, um, remember now, you, I don't know your age, uh, you can do a retirement annuity now, but you'll stay in that retirement. You cannot touch that retirement annuity. And very important, if you put a big lump sum in the retirement annuity and tomorrow um, people get retrenched, as Dawn said earlier, it's obviously very topical at the moment, you cannot get that money out of retirement annuity. The only time when you can get it out is on death before 55 or ill health. But now, for example, um, to the question now, you now become, you turn, and you don't need to take that. You can leave it up to 100 years old in the retirement. There's no rule or regulation that force you one day to get out of it. You can stay there forever. But when you hit, it's 55, then you have the option to go to a living annuity. And maybe, Mark, you can explain the difference then. What is the difference between the retirement annuity where the client was in versus now the product he or she moved to? Sure. So the, the retirement annuity is typically a, a savings vehicle. So that's while I'm working, I'm employed, and that's the vehicle that I use to make my retirement funding contributions to. So that's a saving vehicle. And then the living annuity 
is an instrument that's used for once I retire. And now I take those savings that I've made into my retirement annuity. I retire from it. I convert it to a living annuity and I start to draw down on my savings. And it provides me with an income on whatever basis I need, whether it be monthly, whether it be quarterly, quarterly um, semi-annually or, or even yearly. But, but one of the key differences, I think, in the context of this conversation is that the retirement annuity is uh, governed by the Pensions Fund Act. So from an investment perspective, it has those restrictions which Albert talked about. So I won't discuss that um, any further. But the living annuity is instead governed by the Long-Term Insurance Act. And that has different rules around asset exposure. And that means that generally at life company level, um, the, the, the product provider is not allowed to exceed more than 40% of its assets that sit in its life license um, in offshore assets, for example. But the key difference is, is that Regulation 28 is applied at member level. So Dawn, Albert and myself, we could all have retirement annuities and each of us must comply with that rule um, individually. Whereas with living annuities, it's done at life company level. So, so Dawn could be 100% offshore. I could have zero. Albert could have 40. But as long as we, between us on aggregate, were below 40%, it's, it's actually fine. So what we're finding is quite attractive at the moment is lots of clients who want to take more than the 40% um, exposure to offshore are looking for product providers that have capacity on their life license to be able to, to give them uh, more offshore exposure. Because very important, sorry, Jackie, which people must remember is that if I have a living annuity um, and I immigrate, I cannot take my living annuity with. So that's why that offshore capacity availability in the or the product provider is extremely important that uh, you cannot take your living annuity with when you immigrate. But when I have a retirement annuity, you can cash it in, pay the taxes and take the money with when you immigrate. Sorry, Dawn, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, um, I, yeah um, I just wanted to say that um, one of the considerations, and, and I'm coming across this all the time with my clients, is that, you know, the rush to um, put something into a living annuity because you can suddenly get all this offshore exposure. When you retire from a retirement annuity, you can take one third as a lump sum and then there's lump sum tax that applies, you know, and you're over the age of 55. But on that other two thirds, which becomes the living annuity, which is which is what Mark was talking about, um, that produces an income, income which can vary on, on um, between 2.5% and 17.5%, but that is income. So if you're still working and you're still earning and you're still earning an income and presumably over the age of 55, it's a decent income, that income is going to be added to your tax and you're going to be taxed at the marginal rate. And the marginal rate is probably in the region of 40% plus, right? For, for most people, I should think, listening to, to that webinar. So, you know, you've got to think really carefully about what are the tax implications of, of putting it into that, that living annuity because they go beyond just, you know, being able to invest it, it offshore. Good point. Thank you. Now, Adjit would like to know, he's above 55 years old. He says, should I move my RA to an LA considering the poor performance of the market? Is, is that a, a consideration? What, what, is, what are the considerations? Mark, I, I think exactly what I've just said. You know, is he still? If he's still earning, then he really needs to get his financial advisor to look at the tax implications of making that decision. You can't just say yes or no. It, you know, if he's not working anymore, then fine. But it really depends on whether he's working or not, in my opinion. Yeah. Also, it depends, uh, Jackie, where his RA is at the moment. Does he only have one investment choice? Because most platforms currently have that various fund choices and also various asset manager choices. So maybe it's not the RA's problem or the market's problem. It can also, you can, you can also, for example, before he just run off and incur costs and taxes, as Dawn said, he can maybe stay with the RA and just look at what is his underlying investment options. Or Anthony, you also have a thing called the section 14 transfer because you may find that your RA you invested in currently is quite expensive. Um, and then maybe you can do a section 14 transfer away from that platform 
to maybe a more investment-related platform where the fees are potentially cheaper um, and also have various fund options. So there's various, you don't have to retire to living annuity just to get out of the RA. You can, I, I would propose that you first analyze what is wrong in that RA uh, and try to fix that. Um, I just want to add a caveat here that, um, you know, you guys on lists may not consider all the time is that if that RA is on an insurance platform and the broker has set the retirement age at 65, if they try and do a section 14 transfer, there'll be early termination mm. penalties as well. Mm. Now, very important. We normally and say those don't early wait. termination penalties no. can be nasty. They can be as high as 30%. You'll tend to one will never make up your money. So yes, very true. So we always look out for those. I always say if there's cost to get out, in my view, touch with the, the, the client must really look at not transferring the money out, unless there's specific other scenarios as well. I agree. Dawn, that's a very critically important point you've made there. Is that a is that a, a retirement date that you can change once you've got into the investment, or do you have to know that as soon as you start investing? On insurance platforms, particularly if you took it out pre-2007, but sometimes even later, um, that date is set on that day. And the, the reason why you have these early termination penalties is that brokers that sell this kind of policy, and I don't, I never do, I, I think they're an abomination. Um, they get their commission paid up front for the length of the, the term of the policy up to, so in other words, until age 65. So you'll find, and sorry, I'm going to be a little bit, mm, brokers are not gonna like me very much, when I say this, but because um, they get more commission if they put your retirement age at 65 instead of 55, guess what they're going to do, right? Okay, hmm. so they get paid all that commission uh, up to 27 years up front on day one, right? So, um, and that is what the insurance company tries to get back from you, not from the broker, from you when you retire from it early. So, um, you know, that that is where the problem lies is that, if, if if you've put it in there at 65 and you're on an insurance platform, sorry for you, you know, obviously a yeah. little bit later, they, there's now this five year, if it's less than five years old, you, you're going to be in a better in better shape. But older ones than that, and if you're the age of 55, the chances are that they are older than that. You're going to um, have to have a tough conversation with your broker. Thank you. Just. Just one thing I would add there as well, just regarding those penalties. So um, before you do consider making that move, um, you can get a quote from the life company that will tell you yeah. what those penalties will be. So, so you don't have to commit and, and take that cost. But look at the small print very closely that's in that letter that you receive as well, because sometimes it will say that you pay the, that amount whether you stay or whether you go. Effectively, you either take a deep cut now or you sort of drip over a, a period of time because it's it's built into your future returns. Um, so so it is unfortunate for clients who find themselves in that position. Um, but the other point I would make, I, I mentioned the retail distribution review, and one of the things that um, industry have lobbied on um, quite extensively there is is around these penalties. And one of the things that's been proposed is that they'll look at um, penalties and it's been suggested that if a client's been with a platform uh, for a certain period of time, beyond a certain time, which we don't know what that is yet, um, that they, they may make penalties um, disallowed uh, in, in the future. So, so if you are in that situation, maybe when that regulation comes in, the, the prospects for the future might be better. But we, we don't know. That's just what's been suggested at this stage. Uh, Mark, we've been waiting for RDR for years, right? And and really, they've, they've got, uh, FSCA has got other things on its mind quite clearly. I mean, the first big change came about in 2007. Before 2007, these early termination penalties could take your entire portfolio, 100%. It was then capped in 2007 at, at 30%. It, you know, and we're now, what, 17 years later, 13 years later, and it's still the same. Mm. You know, so, I mean, I don't hold my breath that... The, the problem is you have to look at who funds the FSCA. Hmm? It's the same people that are going to be impacted by a change in this regulation. So do you think it's going to happen? Mm. I don't. I think, Jackie, also, it's I think it's important for the client to also take note that if you say, okay, fine, he or she would like to do a new RA, 
there's always the investment related platforms as well where obviously there's no termination fees when the yeah, clients decide to take it out so it's, it's not that i want to make clear for your audience that they don't think we're all RAs have termination penalties for new investment related yeah. platforms there's no initial fee those i find most of most of those platforms do not charge initial fees like ourselves or if the client at any stage of the game <clears> decide <throat> let me move that RA away there's no termination fees whatsoever why because if there's an advisor fee an initial advisor fee these investment platforms pay as and when, when the deal goes in. So they don't sort of amortize it over a period of time um, when looking for when the client one day will retire. So there are good, there are good RAs out there as well. Thank you. That's good to know as well. Um, Niels wants to know, can a trust be the owner of an RA? No. No. Yeah. Is, it, is it Niels? Yeah. No, yeah. it must be an individual, yeah. uh, Jackie. It must be an individual. So it's not a trust, not a good question though. Uh, it's not a question I get often. So a trust, a company, a CC cannot invest into an R. It has to be an individual. Thank you. We've got quite a long question here from Adrian. We may not be able to answer the specifics, but I guess the, the key points here would, be apply, would apply to many people. Adrian says he is relocating to Australia in 2021. He will have permanent residence and would prefer to be taxed on his living annuity in Australia as tax rates are lower. So he's going to pursue being non-tax resident, which he says will trigger a CGT event. And his understanding is that his living annuity will not attract CGT. Um, and so in broad brushstrokes, what is your suggestion there if you want to move to Australia and minimize your tax liability? Dawn, is it a very comp Yeah, you know, um, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, this, um, you know, I, I understand he's going to be formally emigrating. So his annuity is going to be paid out here. Um, he will get withholding tax here. Right. So um, and then, you know, he can get it paid on an annual basis and then take it over to Australia. Double taxation won't apply. Um, so he can declare it in Australia and they won't do it. But this, you know, when it comes to those kind of nuances, you really need to get a um, somebody who's okay with tax in both in both jurisdictions to look after your tax returns that going going forward. But withholding tax is still going to apply. Thank you. Albert, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I agree with Dawn. Um, obviously, as I said earlier, I assume Anthony already has a living annuity. So that means, as I said earlier, Anthony, if you now immigrate, the living annuity will remain behind. So the first thing is obviously for that platform where your living annuity is, is to say how much offshore capacity does that living annuity or the platform can provide you? Because obviously I assume you would like to have more offshore exposure, seeing that you're not part of the country anymore. So from our side is that he's immigrated. So I assume, Anthony, you'll have a block rand account. Um, ideally an annual, because we have to, a living annuity has to pay your income minimum 2.5%, maximum 17.5%. And you can take that either monthly, quarterly, six monthly or annually. So we, we, we propose take it annually Anthony, we will then pay the money to um, the Block Rand account and then your bank there in South Africa to assist to take the money over to Australia. Or sometimes we can assist to pay with these currency, um, um, various currency companies to pay it directly from us to the Australian bank account. Uh, in my view, um, I, I would think a double taxation agreement will apply um, because the question would be, do we withhold tax? or does Australia and then pay out the gross amount and it will be taxed in Australia or do we deduct tax and then he claim it back on Australia. But there I agree 100% of Dawn. Um, one of the most complicated components in our business is currently, I would say top five, is the sort of various components to look at regarding immigration. If I immigrate like Anthony if, or um, I die today, and my children are living overseas, sort of all of those components, Jack, is very important. So I don't think one can advise over one liner. Anthony has to, on that component, see uh, specialized advice. Thank you. And uh, Paul wants to know about guaranteed annuity products that are currently available in South Africa. What are your views on guaranteed annuity products? And would you recommend these for someone that wants to go on early retirement at age 55? Lucky Paul. Albert, you're nodding. Do you, would you like to take that one? 
Um, yeah, and I agree with, uh, with Paul. I think Marcus, uh, Malcolm is definitely better equipped to answer this question because he looked at guaranteed annuities uh, some time ago for us, Jackie. So, Mark, do you mind? I'm going to give this question to you. Yeah, sure. No problem. Um, I, I think the thing with guaranteed annuities is that um, it's a broad term and there are a number of or different ways in which they can be implemented. Yes. Yeah. So, so um I think we've definitely in the environment this year, we've seen the popularity has, has increased. And I think part of the reason for that is because you look at the rates that you get from a guaranteed annuity. They're typically linked to the longer end of the, the bond uh, yield curve. And because of all the volatility that we had earlier this year, we saw a massive spike in, in bond yields and the bond yield curve is, is quite steep at the moment, meaning that you can get quite attractive rates from, from guaranteed annuities. Uh, but there's a lot of things that you need to bear in mind. So, so I think that the, the key determinant of whether a guaranteed annuity or a living annuity is going to be suitable for you, it all stems down to the amount that you've saved. If you've saved enough, then you should be able to start a living annuity with an income level that's sustainable that should be able to maintain you for the rest of your life. If you haven't, you run the risk that you outlive your, your capital. Whereas with a guaranteed annuity, if, you, if you've saved enough, then it will ensure that whatever percentage income that pays um, should be sufficient to meet your monthly expenses. But if you haven't, then you'll get an income for life, but that income you receive might not be enough to actually meet your expenses um, month to month. But the, the, the key differences are the living annuity provides an opportunity for you to leave a legacy behind. So when you pass away, you have an asset that you can pass on to your loved ones when you die. Whereas with the guaranteed annuity, typically the benefit dies with you or if you've built it in so that it can go to a spouse, for example, when you pass away, um, it may be that the level of income that um, your spouse receives on your death is lower than what you were receiving. Um, or it can also mean that your starting level of, of, of income uh, may be lower than if you had um, than if you didn't have a spousal benefit. I, I think the other thing to bear in mind is that, uh, and I, we could talk about this for a long time, um, but also you, there's different ways in which you can do it. You can start with a flat income. So you sign up, it's a 10 year guaranteed period and the level of income remains the same for the, the 10 years. So you don't get any inflationary increase um, on the amount that you're receiving. If you go with flat, your starting income will be higher than if you build an inflationary um, amount into it. So it takes a while for it to reach the level of the, the flat, but I, I think you have to get quotes from different places to see what's going to work best for, for you. Yeah, yeah also um, I think, we'll know, get, sorry, 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 Dawn. Yeah, I've, you know, Mark, I've, you know, obviously been getting quite a lot of, um, you know, queries along this line and quite, you know, in, in my uh, time as in financial advisory, I have yet to sell one. Um, uh, this year may be, may be the exception, but there, there's so many caveats. Um, if, if somebody's single, um, have no, no dependents, no spouses, no, no nothing, and has, has got, you know, limited funds um, and is very risk averse, then, then it makes sense, you know, to, to do it. They're going to get this return. It isn't shooting the lights out, but it's at least you know, well, it's certainly doing better than the JSE at, at this point in time. Mm. Um, you know, oddly enough, the only query I've had is actually from a guy who wants to make sure that his his spouse and children never get a cent of it. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I'm being absolutely yeah. serious. He's, he's not my client, but yeah, that was the only sort of serious query that I've entertained this year. He, he yeah. must have some rotten children. Mark, want to add something to that? Yeah, sure. And and just to come back, to, so you you sign up for these sort of ten year periods. So so I think um, you know earlier this year has looked like a very attractive opportunity to go into a product like this, but we don't know where we'll be ten years further down the line. So just to give an example, in two thousand and three, bond yields were at similar levels to where they peaked um, earlier this year. So for someone taking out a guaranteed annuity at that point in time, it was a great time. However, 
10 years later, when they would have come to do their replacement policy, yields were actually half of what they were at the time that they, they would have taken out the original annuity, which would have resulted in a, in a significant drop of income for that person replacing the policy at that, that point in time. So it, it, you get these moments um, where they look incredibly attractive, but... Um, Dawn. Sorry, Dawn. Yeah, I... Um, there was a point in time um, where the, the, there was no such guarantee period. In fact, it was the whole of life. Mm. I'm, I'm not sure when those guarantee periods came in. But I, I do know because I actually um, had a client who bought um, a living annuity, a, a life annuity, when the, the bond rates were 25%. And he was still getting paid those on the day he died. Mm. So Niels has a follow-up question on the issue of the trust as an owner of an RA. He says, Momentum has accepted me nominating my trust as the beneficiary of my RA. What will then happen when I pass on? Yeah, the that's one thing you have to be... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Go, you take it, Albert. I think, I think Niels, very important. Um, there is, remember, on a... I think one of the top five questions, Jackie, which we some don't get, when when Niels... Sorry, Niels, I'm, I'm, let maybe not use your name because this person is going to die at one stage. Uh, let's use an example. Peter, when Peter owns an RA, retirement annuity, a uh, very important, Peter, um, the RA, as I said earlier, is governed by the Pensions Fund Act, and the Pensions Fund Act has a section, a section 37C, or the Pensions Fund Act, which means, um, Niels, you can nominate whoever you want as the beneficiary of an RA. On the death of that investor, the trustees of the fund is going to look at who are the dependents of that fund. So say, for example, um, it turns out eventually, so it's not a guarantee that the trust will get it, um, but whoever gets it, that, that, that beneficiary now have the following options. Option one is he definitely does not have the option to continue with the RA. That RA is done. So the beneficiary have the option to say, give me the cash, all the cash Neil saved or Peter saved, net of withdrawal, that rate of retirement tax tables, or the beneficiary can say, now I'm going to transfer it over to a living annuity tax neutral, and as Don said earlier, take income from that living annuity. But just to summarize two points, uh, um, Neil's very important. Even though you nominated a trust as a beneficiary of your RA, is not confirmed that that trust will inherit that money. If, for example, you have a spouse that are the pain more dependent on you than the trust, and then the second point is very important: that trust cannot continue. Whoever inherits that cannot continue with the RA. They can either take the cash, net of tax, 100% tax neutral to the other product that living annuity we spoke about earlier, or you can have a combination of the two. Maybe you can take some cash to a tax-free amount of 500,000 and the balance transfer over to a living annuity. Thank you. Dawn, do you have anything to add to that? No, I, th I he's covered it perfectly. Thank That's you awesome. for that comprehensive reply. Um, Mervyn wants to know, can he take a combination of living and guaranteed annuities? So for example, 40% with guaranteed and 60% with living annuities. Mark, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, so you you can. Um, there's there's something that we've seen um, in the market more recently, hybrid annuities, where you can have both in one place. Um, but it is possible to split split. And I think Albert, you might might be better positioned to comment on this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But um, it is possible to split the benefit at retirement and have part in a living annuity and part in a, a life annuity. The one issue is is that you can transfer from a living annuity to a life annuity, but you can't transfer the other way. So once you're in a life annuity, for whatever portion of your retirement benefit at the point that you retire, you, you are there for, for life, basically. Hmm. Did I miss anything, Albert? No, anything? All good. I, no, all good, okay. Mark. I think, as, as Don said, um, maybe in the beginning of the year, there were questions or demand for guaranteed annuities, but for the bigger retirement amounts, Jackie, what we do find or come across is that um, at funds, so where the fund where I retired from, so say, for example, I'm retiring from my company today, and my value was 20 million rand. Um, instead of in the old days of uh, the, the client or the advisor will give us one living annuity, 
with 20 million, the advisor will give us now two living annuities. So the advisor will complete two application forms of, for example, 10 million and 10 million, um, both living annuities, but that will give the advisor the option maybe next year or three years or five or six years from now to take one of those annuities and transfer that maybe to the best insurer out there at that time, providing a guaranteed annuity, but he's leaving the other 10 behind. If, for example, he only gave me the one, 20, one amount and 20, that would mean, and at the time he says, okay, I need some guaranteed annuities, the whole 20 must be transferred out. So if you want to split, um, you can split at source. Um, and that's the time when you retire from the fund over to the living annuity. So also an option. Yeah, um, I know that there's at least one insurance platform out there that has their own sort of trying to be clever hybrid model that also mimics what what you're talking about. Thank you. And then Denise wants to know, for someone who has never invested offshore, is there a minimum you can invest to start with? Um, so we've We've touched on the investing locally and offshore. Is there a sensible minimum to start off with, Mark? What what do you, what is your number crunching showing you? Yeah, it, it depends on what sort of portion of assets it represents in total, I guess, and um, and and you know what your tolerance for risk um, suggests you should take offshore. Um, minimum investment levels on our side are, are $25,000. That's our, our minimum investment size. I think this might be a question that's better better for Dawn, but um, I think you know often we find with people with um, smaller assets, they might find that um, some local funds, for example, give them enough exposure to offshore without actually physically having to take money out of the country. Dawn, going offshore sounds really expensive. What would you say the minimum is to make those costs worthwhile? You know, it, it is expensive in the end that you, you know, you obviously have the transfer costs and then you're going to have to run a bank account or insurance platform or something when, when your money's over there. Um, so I, I think it's a matter of, you know, you don't have to get it offshore at all costs, but you do get clients that are so fearful that this country is going the route of Zimbabwe and it doesn't matter. They want their money out. And, you know, then then you just, you know, have to accommodate for them from that perspective. But if you want to sort of take a step backwards and, and, and be, you know, a little bit reasoned about it, say, listen, you're, you're wanting the offshore exposure. Why do you physically want it offshore? And I agree, you know, I think, you know, $25,000, which is what, half a million rand, um, you know, is, you know, you've got to be able to put it somewhere and diversify your investment out of it. You can't just sort of put it there and keep it in a bank account because it's going to do nothing in a bank account except maybe, you know, give you more money if you bring it back because the rand is appreciated. But if you want to actually take it across and then maybe invest in some, you know, maybe some Vanguard um, ETFs and, and, and those kind of things, then, you know, sort of half a million to a million rand is about the sort of area that you should be looking at. Below that, rather build up the fund here using offshore funds that are available here, offshore ETFs that are available here, build it up mm. till it gets to that level and then ship it offshore. Yeah, I can Sounds maybe like just add a good point advice. there. Jackie, just maybe if Denise said she hasn't invested offshore, um, for Denise's sake, Denise, obviously I don't know the facts, but if you look at on the 91 side, just out of interest, we got a fund overseas. If I like take the money out, the minimum $25,000 is the global franchise fund. But Denise may also say, I don't have $25,000. Then we also have in South Africa, for example, a fund which we called, as Dawn said, a feeder fund. Now, with that, you can start with a normal debit order, um, Denise, start of the debit order, South African money. The South African money will invest in the global franchise feeder fund, and that fund actually feeds into the overseas fund. So, yes, you get offshore exposure, even though you use a South African debit order. The only difference is the debit order, the amount you invest here, one day will report well will report back in rand and one day will pay out in rand. It'll give you offshore exposure, it'll give you the rand dollar depreciation, everything but it will pay back in South Africa, where if you had enough money, you take the money out of the country and then you'll invest into the fund directly. So don't, don't I just want to clarify, don't think you have to take the money out and the minimum is $25,000. You can also invest in South Africa with a debit order to get offshore exposure on funds which are feeds into overseas funds. Thank you. Know, you. The one, 
sort of uh, caveat and, you know, sort of being a little bit of a devil's advocate here is that when it comes to feeder funds and um, all, I mean, they may not be called a feeder fund, but that's essentially what they are. They're South African funds and they're invested offshore, but they're actually in RAND, RAND denominated. The thing to look at quite carefully is the fees. The fees can be horrific. I've seen fees up to 2.8%. Um, and that's completely unnecessary. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I, I'm not particularly, you know, I'm not a fair with what you charge at Investec, but there are feeder funds out there that are horribly expensive. You know, try and look at a fee that is coming in at the absolute most 1.5, but try and maybe keep it below 1%. And you might have to go for a, a unitized ETF type tracker fund in order to to get those fees down there you know in the low growth environment like we're in at the moment every one percent on a million rand is ten thousand rand saved i mean how how simpler can you get that's good a uh, good point i think they just to add to that um um dawn obviously what we also find especially on the platforms is whenever you invest um try to look for the clean class now, Absolutely. the clean class, for example, you cut about quite a few basis, a lot, quite a lot of basis points of that, where, for example, you would have invested in the fund directly. So, valid point, and I accept that. Thank you. And then Alwyn has a follow-up question for Dawn. He says, why does Dawn call the hybrid annuity option a trying-to-be-clever option? I'm looking at that option right now, he says. You know, um, they, it, even as a as a broker or somebody who, who sells these products, they are difficult to understand. If he's managed to find a broker that can actually explain it to him in simple terms, not just for now, but in the future, then awesome. But there are very few that brokers that I've found when it comes to complicated products like that, that can actually explain um, how it works better than just having it just in a living annuity or just in a life annuity. Um, you know, they, yes, there, there is room for it. If, it. if you can explain to a client how it works, I mean, a lot of uh, an advisor's job is actually to meet a client's expectations. Um, and you can't meet their expectations if the product is so complicated, you can't actually explain it to them properly. Thank you. And then Mervyn has a follow-up question for Albert. What is a clean class? Can you just elaborate on that a bit more for us? Yes, Mervyn, a clean class. Good question, Mervyn. Um, Mark, clean classes, I think, came into place about, about five years ago. Yeah, about 2012, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, clean I think that's also sort of related on the RDR, which was, as Don said, we was discussed earlier and waiting for to to to, to be implemented. And normally, when you invest into in the past, Mervyn, when you invested in a fund, that fund will consist of rebates of having some of the platform, if you have in a platform, or even the advisor fee built into the fund fee. Now, a clean class have taken all of that away. So when you look on a platform, like if you look at the 91 platform, let's say in South Africa, and I quote you a fee, the fee on the platform, there will be normally only be three fees. And it's very clear cut type of fees. That, that one fee will be what is the product, the 91 product fee being the retirement annuity, that's point one. The second fee will be what is the advisor, Dawn's advisor's fee. And then the third component would be the fund fee. Now that fund fee you see, we call it the clean class. There's absolutely nothing else built into that, which you, for example, would have found in the past. Mark, I don't know if you want to add to that, if I haven't missed anything. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's about separating the cost of distribution from products, basically. Yeah. Yep. yeah so it's, it's a discounted it's performance streams. Yeah, it's the performance fees that really come in and dirty things up. Yeah. Very but complicated in a clean, terrain. Yeah, but in a clean class, you can find either a fund that have a performance fee or a fund that does not have a performance fee. So even though it's clean class, you will find you can still find both of those components. But very importantly, there's nothing else built into that fund fee, which, for example, you could have come across in the past, or you would have come across uh, in the past. I hope I answered that question, Mervyn. Well, I, no, I, I won't use performance fee funds either, but that's me. Is that because they are much more expensive than meets the eye, Dawn? Yeah, they are. You can, and, and really it depends on their benchmark that they used in order to charge those performance fees. And there's been a lot of, quite frankly, manipulation of those benchmarks to actually boost their performance fee. 
um, and really, uh, you know, I, I really don't like them. They're usually on more expensive um, products anyway, and then you go and add performance fees onto it, and suddenly your your two percent becomes two point eight percent, and it's it just doesn't make sense. Lots more questions coming through on fees here. Terence wants to know what is a reasonable percent to pay for fees on a living annuity in South Africa? Perhaps just in broad brushstrokes. Dawn, maybe you want to pick up briefly. You mentioned the one percent. Well, you know that you know there are there going to be the the fees. There's going to be the platform fee with a wrapper fee because it's in a life license, so it has to have a wrapper fee. Um, so there'll be a platform fee, maybe 0.4 percent. I think Investex around 0.4. There'll be a wrapper fee, usually about an extra 0.3. Sometimes it's built into the admin fee. Um, there will be the fund fees, and those fund fees could vary between, quite frankly, 0.7 and 3, right? So, and without a huge amount of, of difference. Um, so, you know, rather pick the um, good performing funds with a, with a lower fee, without performance fees, under 1%. And then there's financial advisory fees. Um, there's upfront financial advisory fees, um, which I've, I've never charged, I don't like them, but in terms of the regulations, they can be as high as 3.5%. Um, and then there's the ongoing fee, which regulation again between 1% and 1. Point, no, between 1.5% and, and zero, obviously. Uh, the average is around about 1%. So if you if you sort of adding them them all up, I would, including financial advice, try and keep those fees below two point five percent right across board. Yeah, thank you. Obviously, the ninety one platform fee varies. Not almost correctly between forty basis points and ten basis points. There's a scale, but I think also very important. Fees is extremely important, and I'm, I agree with that. But in Afrikaans, you also have a thing, and I'm saying this, goedkoop is dierkoop. So very important, mm -hmm. fees, very important, your client, your audience should not only look at fees. So I think fees are a very important, important component, but when you look at a quality living annuity, quality product, quality fund, for example, don't only look at fees, because if you only look at fee, great, you have a very cheap, nice, a nice, nice offering or investment, but that investment may not give you a return. So I think you need to add the fee must be a component of the whole package to look at. Thank uh, you. Absolutely. You know, that's why I said you actually need to take performance into consideration. So Stephen has, uh, I'm not sure if it's a question or a comment. He says, why do they charge performance fees? Isn't it their job to perform? I'm not going to answer that. No, Mark, <laughs> you're happy to answer that one. Yeah, I mean, it's... Does 91 charge performance fees anyway? Depends on our funds. Mm -hmm. We have performance fees, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think the main thing about performance fees is, you know, I, I understand the reasoning behind it. Um, I, I take Stephen's point fully. I think the main thing where they exist is that the methodology has to be fair. And coming back to what Dawn was saying earlier, you know, you see some funds where they might start taking a performance fee for performance that's 15% behind its benchmark, for example. So it's got a minimum fund fee, and then they start accruing a performance fee from 15% behind their benchmark, and then there's a fee at benchmark, and then as they exceed that benchmark, then the performance fee can be can be higher. So, so I think it has to be fair that you you get rewarded by a lower fee for underperformance, but you pay a higher fee for um, for outperformance, and and that the sharing rate also must be fair, and that the majority of that outperformance needs to go to the client's balance and not to the to the asset manager. We've seen so some that are completely uncapped on the on the top end, so the, the missiles have a limit that's fair. <laughs> Mark, because I think, Jackie, very important for your audience also understand with performance fee is not only we charge, was the, the as managed charge a fee for outperformance, there's also a, the fee will also drop below benchmark. So if it's not a performance fee, the fee will, for example, be 1%, doesn't matter what the fund perform. With a performance-based fee, the fee can go higher than 1%, but also can go lower, quite a lot lower 
than 1% if the fund manager out underperform its benchmark. So I don't think with performance fees, my point is don't only think performance we're charging the outperformance fee, it can also go lower than the normal fund which does not charge performance fee depending on the um, the performance. But as Mark said, the, the reasoning calculation of how you put it together, that is important to be sure it's fair. Thank you. So we're coming I mean, to the end of our, just, sorry, Dawn, yes, continue. You know, just to put it more bluntly than these very polite gentlemen um, that I'm with, uh, really it's a performance bonus to keep the asset manager, you know, um, hungry um, so that he can pay off his Porsche quicker. So, you know, a bit that you are paying for. Yeah, yeah, you don't. But then if I yeah, was I one of those you know, portfolio managers, I'd rather have one rather have a one percent fee and then you do nothing anyway because you get one percent regardless so as, as for me a performance fee should be almost keeping more on my toes because my fee can go higher but my fee also can go a lot lower than that fixed one percent so but there's most of the funds out there jackie just very important to your audience look at the class of the fund because some of the funds you may have for example a 91 managed fund is available and it's as a performance fee or as a fixed fee you find that more and more that some funds out there give the client and the advisor the option to choose which one so you're not stuck with you have no choice you have the option to say because some clients like performance fees because of the variability and some clients like a fixed fee because they don't want to see that upside surprise um, and they can choose then depending on the class they choose. So we're coming to the end of our webinar now and Andrew has touched on a question that probably ties in with what we've been talking about a lot here. Instead of all these performance fees and complexities with uh, annuities, he says, what about a platform like an easy equities type platform? You just invest in dollars, very low fees, no minimum investments needed. So in other words, just do it yourself. Just find some index trackers and get on with it. What's your view on that? Uh, I hear you, Andrew, and I hear as I sort of like again as my earlier point um, that um, fees is not the only thing. But Andrew, for example, if you if you a South African tax resident, you take the money out of the country, you can put it, for example, now directly in that easy equity platform. Um, what are the things, forget about the fee now, but say, for example, you need to look at income tax, you need to look at capital gains tax, you need to look at liquidity on death, you need to look at estate duty. Um, easy equity shares direct offshore is known to be, watch out for CITES tax, Watch out, which is offshore inheritance tax, which can be as high as 40%. Watch out for probate and all those things. So on the one side, you invested yourself, you went to the cheapest possible option out there. I'm not saying it's wrong, but if you add all those other things now, which you'll expose yourself to with some of the other product offerings, for example, which we have we know about and we've seen, taking all of those things away from you, I think maybe touch with um, your net result or your net cost actually may have been more at the end than what you actually have thought of planned for. So watch out for that. Fees, again, is not the only thing. You need to look mm -hmm. at that entire package of various mm -hmm. other things, especially if you go offshore, um, which is out there uh, offshore. And then my question would also be, what, what do you buy when you go yes, for that exactly. platform? Because exactly. there's hundreds of thousands of investment options out there. And even if you go for a tracker, which one are you going to buy? Because it could have serious performance differentials to the next one. Um, so if you look at the MSCI World Index, for example, and you strip out America from the returns over the past 10 years, you get a very, very different outlook. Average. So, yeah. And it's not just about where you've been, but it's about where we're going. And that's the call that you have to make. And that's where investment professionals like Dawn can help with that decision. And that's worth paying for in my mind. I agree. 100%. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. <laughs> yeah. That's why they're in sales. <laughs> yeah. Dawn, what's your view? I mean, should people have a bit of a balance? Well, you know, th th that's the whole thing, is that when you do it yourself, what asset allocation are you going to use? You know, what percentage are you going to put into the various asset classes? You know, money, bonds, stocks, whereabouts the stocks, where in the world are you going to put those stocks? Should you be putting some in gold and all of that kind of thing? And, you know, I was having this discussion with the, the, an asset manager I work with very closely, the house view that we used to have. And I mean, Investec used to have their sort of every six months have their meetings and you, you get what the house view is of in terms of asset allocation. And, you know, once every six months, once every eight months was good to go. 
now we're having to do it on a weekly basis you know and and mm. you know to not to put a you know fine point in it but that is the secret source of an asset manager at the end of the day when it comes to um designing a portfolio that is their secret source that is that 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 is their bread and butter is how do you blend the various asset classes to get the desired objective um from that portfolio and it's very difficult for a, a do-it-yourselfer who isn't professionally trained to do it i agree i agree don we called 91 now not investing anymore <laughs> <laughs> A rose by any other name still has as many thorns. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you to Dawn. Thanks for joining us, Dawn. We can always rely on you for giving us the, your, your clear view, rational view on the various investment options. And for more from Dawn, you can see she's got a number of articles uh, in our thought leadership section on Biz News at the moment, including one on uh, retirement funds. And thank you to Mark Lindley and Albert Kutsia of 91 platform for joining us today. Thank you, thank Jack. You, Jack. Appreciate the opportunity.